From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that goes deep into the lives and stories behind some of our biggest ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. Sahela Abdullali did not want to write a book about her experience of being raped. It was a long time ago, and she'd very much moved on with her life. But after some articles she'd written about it went viral, she did write a book. What we talk about when we talk about rape is an incredible genre-defying discussion of the troubling ways that rape and sexual violence are experienced and discussed. With no self-pity but much insight and, I have to say, an inherently joyous character, she brings sensible, open thinking to an entirely taboo topic. Now, before you listen to this podcast, please be aware that this episode does contain discussion of sexual violence. Sahila Abdullali, welcome to the Sydney Opera House. Thank you. It looks beautiful. You have described yourself, and I'm quoting you here, as a brown, bisexual, middle-aged, atheist, Muslim, survivor, immigrant writer. Which of those things is most important? I think writer. Why is that? The other things are constant, like I'm always brown. It's not really something I think about. And I'm always bisexual. It's not something I think about. Muslim, I'm not really, but I was born that way. But the writer is what I do. It's my choice. A lot of the writing that you've done, though, and particularly the writing that you've done recently, Mm -hmm. has been very much to do with being a survivor. How have you negotiated that part of your identity throughout your life? The last few years, that's not been most of my writing. It's just this this book, which actually took six months. Right. So it wasn't that much time. But the survivor thing has followed me all my life, and I've negotiated it differently the, but the initial thing was my choice because the I was raped. That was not my choice. Mm. But then three years later, I, I could have just kept quiet for the rest of my life. But I didn't want to because when I came, when I went to do my thesis and I just heard all this rubbish about how there's no rape in India and only certain people get raped. And and I wrote that piece for the magazine. So I I guess that was the beginning. And I don't know. I don't know if I knew now what all would happen as a result and that would follow me to the ends of the earth. I don't know if I'd have done it. Interesting. But I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did because it was important to do and it, and it made it made me feel good. It made me feel defiant and good and like I was socking it to someone. <laughs> you know, I couldn't really sock it to the people I wanted to sock it to. <laughs> <laughs> there are various things that you have written about the rape that you experienced when you were 17. Mm -hmm. But for the sake of our listeners who might not have heard you speak about it before, uh, you were raped by four men. Mm -hmm. You were out walking with a a, a friend. How did that begin? It was all kind of what you'd imagine. We were out for a walk and we saw, and it it was a very familiar place because this mountain is a really beautiful mountain that's quite close not too close, but it's walking distance from the house I grew up in. And we always, it was a place we always went for picnics. My parents went there, my grandparents went there. So a very safe place. So we had gone up there for a walk and we saw these four guys in the distance and didn't really think much of it because we thought they were just local people. But then they came up to us and they caught us and they immediately kind of attacked. Did and they speak to you? Yes, yes, we talked nonstop for the whole evening. They they grabbed us and as soon as we realized something was wrong, we couldn't get away because two, two held him and two held me. So neither of us wanted to leave the other behind. 
so it was you know it was very confusing and weird certainly for us and also for them and that's partly how we got away we kind of i played one against the other because whoever was raping me at the time i would kind of try to create dissent with mm. what get him on side or? yeah mm. Mm. a lot of people describing their rapes talk about going out of body yes i absolutely did in fact i don't know if i've ever written about that because it was actually being a it was, i was being a writer because i remember i was lying there it was very painful and horrible and i was lying on the slope on a rock or something and i could look and way far far away i could see the lights of chembur which is where i grew up i could see those lights and i was looking at those lights and i started i started writing the story in my head for a newspaper in I, it wasn't that kind of out of body thing where you feel like you're floating above you know that you read about but it was more like i was outside and i was describing it and that's always been my way to cope how did that story end that you were writing in your head oh i don't remember i was distracted <laughs> i suppose you had a bit going on yeah um so how did you get away from your assailants well they finished and they after they decided not to kill us they said you can go but the thing is by that time it was really dark and we were high up on the mountain and we were both quite wounded so they then said this sounds really weird they then said should we help you go down and my friend said no and i said yes mm. said we can't go down otherwise so they did they they took our arms and they helped us down and they dropped us at the bottom of the mountain and then we went home I've heard you say that before and it struck me that that actually is emblematic of how not straightforward rape is. Mm-hmm. How people have all these assumptions about it. It's kind of the archetypal crime in a way mm-hmm. and people have all of these assumptions about how people are supposed to be while they're being raped, how rapists are supposed to be, how that relationship is supposed to play out between the rapist and oh, his yeah. victim. absolutely and how often that doesn't play out the way that it's supposed to in be. fact it never does in fact i've never heard of a case where the because of because we're also awful about it where the victim doesn't afterwards say why did i do that i mean i actually i didn't feel bad about the us coming down the mountain but i did feel bad for a while about one of the guys i can't remember if he was the leader or one of them maybe they i said to him i'll come back tomorrow if you let me go and he believed me and i felt bad for years that i said that <laughs> what, what know, because you lied to him yeah no not because i lied to him but because it felt like how could i even say that oh i see it's so gross and to to that's not because i lied mm. but but the thing is that that kind of thing when you've been through it then you have a kind of understanding it's really not easy to have otherwise for instance in america when we, the me too thing broke and people were accusing harvey all these people saying but look there she is on his arm after the incident happened and there you know why did she stay with him they do the same thing with domestic violence because it's not so easy you you know you might need to do that to survive in a, in my case it seemed completely clear like what kind of idiots would we be to now deny this support that we need but it could also be just confusion if it's someone you've loved nothing is just black and white so why do we then expect rape to be black and white 
But I think that that's an interesting thing with rape because on one hand you do want to be very clear about rape. You know, you want to be very clear that it's always a crime yes. and that the victim's never at fault yes. and all and of these things. Clear. And you really and so but then I think the conversations that you can have around that become muddied and fraught because mm-hmm. in allowing for that confusion, are you allowing for a, a sort of movement of the lines about what's no. okay and what's not? No, you're absolutely not. Because why is it so difficult to understand that if you don't want it, it's not okay? That's very that's very clear. But how you react, how you survive, how you choose to be with that person, we keep questioning what we do. No one questions what the rapist does afterwards. Just because the rapist is nice to his victim doesn't mean he didn't rape her. Mm. So why is it if the victim is nice to the rapist, it means she wasn't raped? Mm. We don't even apply the same standards. It's very true. I never thought of this before. <laughs> it's true. No, it's, we, we, yeah. we apply very, very different standards. Yeah. your father's response to this. Mm-hmm. He was supportive and believed you mm-hmm. and didn't blame you and didn't occur to him to blame you. No. What was your relationship with him like, you know, when you were a little kid? Oh, always good. I, I always got along really well with him. What sort of a man was he? He was a wild man. <laughs> he was um, He was just himself. You know, he was obsessed with orchids all his life. So he loved us, but really, I suspect deep in his heart, he loved our kids more. <laughs> so, my, and my mother is another kind of shining star. So they were a, go- a good pair because she allowed him to have his obsession, and then she took it on <laughs> as well. And he was full of magic, you know. Like we always, he was always bringing home strange animals, or there was always magic in the house. So to us, he was this incredible guy, and he was very beloved. But but you know, it's like a perception thing where. He didn't succeed in business. He didn't didn't go to college. Mm. He didn't do all those things. What have you got from him, do you think? His nose. (laughs) (laughs) That part I'm not so happy about. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I I have a good part of me that doesn't care that much what people think because I would not have written this book Mm. if I did. And I'm pretty enthusiastic about life, but so is my mother. Mm. So tell me about her. She's great. She's um, she's like that mother whom all your friends love more than they love you. <laughs> so she's very. She was very young when she had us, um, my my brother and me. So she kind of grew up with us. So she's just like just this all loving archetypal lovely mother, and she's she's. She grew up very meek and mild. And then she kind of, like my father always said, he said, I married a lamb and she turned into a tigress. <laughs> because she was very focused on us. Mm. So she did her own thing. You know, she grew orchids. She was a teacher. She always did her own thing. But we had an interesting relationship with my father because, especially in those days in India, we loved him and we were close to him. But he didn't do those kind of things that mothers do, you know, those daily school things. And he was the magic guy doing his thing. But... 
when I was nine and Adil was seven, she started spending three months a year in America. So he was in charge. So those three months, he had, like, I'll never forget the first time he said, you have to cut our nails because we couldn't cut our own nails. And he said, I don't think to do that. Yeah. So he had to take over that stuff for three months. So that, for three months, he'd be the mother and the father. And then he, as soon as she came back, he'd stop. But he, he was okay. He'd take the responsibility yeah, well yeah. She, when he had to. Yeah. And he used to do things like she was never around in the season where I would be in school plays. So he would come. He'd be in the audience. And it was so embarrassing because every time I came on stage, he would get up and start clapping. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, so what was the sort of extended Muslim family? It wasn't always straightforward, your relationship with them, was it? No, and our family is actually not at all a typical family in India. In fact, many people have written books about our family because we're kind of a very odd family. We're very progressive. We're from a quite a backward Muslim sect, but we're a very progressive part of that sect. So many of my relatives fought in the freedom movement. Relatives were big politicians and leaders of the Air Force, Navy, Army. And then the women, the women in my family have always been very different. Like one started, you know, one was the first female pilot, one was the first female motorcycle racer, one was, she started the first university for women, for Muslim women. One, you know, and they do a lot of charity. One has a huge craft collective where she works with artisans. Then another one started a pickle empire. Wow. So they're very tough. So let's get back to 1980 when when you'd been raped, um, but you didn't fall into a sort of dark hole that, again, a lot of people regard post-rape victims to fall into. You had a sort of reverse response immediately afterwards. Well, right then, because the th- I wasn't even thinking about the rape. It was the, we were going to die. Mm. And it was so amazing that they didn't kill us. It wasn't a dark hole, but it wasn't easy because then I went off to college. All these great, exciting things were happening. And I mean, I was 17. You, my attention span wasn't big enough to concentrate on just one thing. So I was excited about college, but there was, it wasn't so much depression or anything, but there was a lot of terror. I was very lucky because if I'd stayed in India at that point, it would have been a lot worse because they were very threatening. They had said, um, we'll kill you if you see you walking on the street. So when I went back to India, I was really terrified. Did you, you continued going back to India after this though, quite deliberately. Yeah, I just, I like to face things. So I felt like if I stay away, then it'll take me longer. When you say it'll take you longer, do you mean it'll take you longer to get over it or you take yeah, you longer? Yeah, just to to get over that init- that terror because they really got us really terrified, which we didn't realise quite. I mean, realistically, we knew it's not like they were going to lie around the line, wait around the corner, but you don't know. Well, you don't know. Yeah. And terror doesn't work like that either. No, it doesn't at all. You're right. Yeah. During uh, your college years, you went back to India for a period and you met some feminists who mm-hmm. um, made a big impression on you uh, and they had a or they introduced you to people that had a, a women's publication called Manushi. 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 Yeah. And you wrote 
uh, and authored and mm-hmm. and owned up to a story in which you described your rape. This was quite revolutionary, really, wasn't it? Yes, it was, and looks like it still is. <laughs> Why did you do that? Well, for one thing, they had me all fired up. They really, you know, I I was 20 and I went back to do my senior thesis and I didn't know any, the only thing I had was a phone number because my professor at Brandeis, my sociology professor said, if you're going to India, I know these women who are doing really good work. They're sort of starting a nascent new kind of feminist movement in India and here's a number. So I just, I went to India and I remember sitting in my house and calling this number, this woman named Sonal Shukla, who's just amazing. So I called her. I said, look, I've come from America. I'm doing this thesis. She said, oh. She said, well, we're about to have the first ever feminist gathering, feminist conference of women, all India, feminist gathering of women in Delhi. So why don't you come? I said, sure. So she said, well, I'm going to take this flight on so-and-so day, meet me on the flight. So I said, okay. So I bought a ticket and I got on the plane. I had no idea what she looked like. I had, she, I said, how will I know you? Oh, you'll know me, she said. And, you know, I got on this plane and I was walking down the aisle and I looked down, there was this sort of fat woman sitting in the seat and she just looked at me and she said, you know, it's so hard to get panties for someone as fat as me. <laughs> And that was her. And she was incredible. And she just took me under her wing. And then we went to Delhi to this ashram. And there were all these women from all over India talking about feminism and, you know, sexuality. And it was just amazing. And the funniest part was that we were in an ashram. And on the gate, it said, you're not allowed to discuss sex in this ashram. (laughs) So we just ignored that. So, so they were, they got, she, Sonal was one and Flavia Agnes, who's still very, very active. She's a lawyer and she was one of the first, if not the first battered wives in India to speak up, to leave her husband, to file a case against him. And she still works nonstop. So the two of them, you know, I think were a bit goblified when I told them my story. So then they egged me on. Mm. I said, I want to write about it. They Really, they said, they must have seen this is a great chance. So they egged me on to write it and they gave me the address of the magazine, which I'd never even seen. And I did. So you published that and then went back to the States. Um, The first job that you got out of university was for a rape crisis Mm centre. And when I first read that in your bio, I assumed that that was by design, but it wasn't at all, was it? Well... It was by design in the sense that I applied. Well, no, I know, yeah. but it wasn't It wasn't like you finished college with the idea that that oh, would no, be the work no, that no. you'd go into. No, in fact, I really didn't think very much. And so I graduated with, you know, honours and this nice degree, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I thought maybe I'd go to grad school eventually, but I knew not yet. And then I had this apartment with my boyfriend and I had to make money. So I didn't quite know what to do. So I just walked into every store I could find and applied. I walked into a what I thought was a furniture store and I went in and apl- I said, would you like, you know, do you need any help? And it turned out to be a funeral home. <laughs> and he said, they don't want to hire anyone. So, and then I saw this ad in the paper for the rape crisis centre that they wanted something. I thought that would be really interesting. And a part of me must have thought I kind of need to do this. I still hadn't worked it out, you know, in my head. Mm. So so that's how. And how was that experience? Was it was it one that kind of made you feel more contextualized? Did it 
did it change the way that you thought about rape or did it just kind of make you feel more part of a continuum? I don't know if it changed the way I thought about rape. It kind of started the way I thought. First of all, I didn't spend that much time thinking about it. I thought about it in the way I wrote in the magazine, sort of like, hey, you know, this does happen. You know, it's hard to say that it changed the way because I'm still so young. Mm. So it helped me develop the way I thought about rape. And there's no question in my mind that it helped me to talk to all these other women in crisis. You know, I didn't think of it as... It was kind of like therapy for me mm. To, mm. to talk to them. And it was fascinating because it wasn't just the hotline. We also got to do all this political work, like I testified at the State House. It was an amazing feeling that all these women, all of them were older than me. I had no experience. I still can't figure out why they hired me. They had such faith in me and they just helped me. And also the Rape Crisis Centre was in a women's centre. It was an old house, Victorian house in Cambridge that in the 70s, a group of women had taken over kind of as a feminist protest. Mm -hmm. And they ha so the Rape Crisis Centre was on the third floor. We had a small little office. But the whole house was full of all these exciting things. There was the battered women's hotline. There was the Weight Watchers Anonymous. So all kinds of things would happen there that I found totally fascinating. And no men were allowed. So that was also very exciting. So what happened after you finished grad school? After I finished grad school, I actually moved to Philadelphia for a summer because we all applied for internships. And I got a really good internship in Philadelphia and I spent a summer there, at the end of which they offered me a job, which was, you know, the pinnacle because from that you go to the New York Times. So that would have been, if I were a serious journalist, I would have taken that job. But instead I had a boy I was in love with in California so I, like a fool, I left then and I went to California. Then I broke up with him and moved back to Boston. Right. So then uh, then there were many years of living six months in Boston, six months in India. I'd always wanted to just go back. So I went, did a lot of back and forth. And in, and so that was also my excuse not to have a full-time job because how can you have a full-time? So I just freelanced. I wrote. I did worked in a bookstore. My brother and I worked in a psychiatric hospital doing sleep studies. We just did every possible thing, writing in between. And then, uh, you know, along the line, published my first book, I guess, in the early 90s. Yeah. And this was a novel? Yeah. Hmm. And then I got started getting some grants, so I did some children's books. But yeah, it was just all back and forth, and I kept coming back and forth to India, and then bit by bit... I started spending more and more time in India. And then my father had a very bad accident in 95 when I was in India and he nearly died. And I stayed home a very long time to help nurse him. So I came back almost a year after and the Americans are very strict. I got caught at the border and they took my green card away and said, you can't just come here as a token couple of days a year. You either stay or you go. So then... My brother by that time had moved to New York and he said, look, come spend a year in New York. It'll be fun. You can get temp jobs and pay your way and in a year you can get your passport and then you can go back because once you have a US passport, you can stay in India forever and they can't kick you out if you come back because mm -hmm. we didn't want to give up that option. So I did stay in New York for a year and at that point I met Tom mm. and all bets were off. living in New York and you were working as a writer and then there was a big event 
in India. Uh, right. In, was it 2013? 2012. 2012. December. Um, Jyoti Singh mm-hmm. um, was a woman who was coming home on the bus and she was attacked and gang raped so violently that she died of her injuries. Mm-hmm. And that struck a chord in India. And to, to put it mildly. To put it very mildly, yeah. So there were protests and conversations about rape that were completely unprecedented. Completely. It's very difficult to even begin to explain what a big deal it was. Because really, going from completely no conversation to every single person, everyone talking about it. It's amazing. So initially, when you were reading about this from the other side of the world, mm-hmm. how were you feeling about it all? Really, the story was so horrifying. It was hard to feel good about mm. any aspect of it. It was awful. And I was also a bit indignant that they kept saying rape victim and they should have said murder victim because, you know, being dead kind of trumps being raped, I think. I actually wasn't following it that much because I felt I was done with rape. So I knew it was happening, but I didn't look very closely. Later on, after I got involved, I looked closely and I wasn't so happy about it because a lot of the indignation was very much in keeping with the whole old thing of, oh, those bad rapists out there that have nothing to do with us. Hang them, burn them, castrate them. Mm -hmm. It's not us, it's them. So later on, I wasn't, it's good. I was happy about the conversation, but I wasn't happy about all the directions it was taking. But just in that beginning in December, those first few weeks, I, I just kept seeing the headlines and sort of skimming and thinking, I'm so happy I don't have to deal with this. But then I did. Well, you did because, um, unbeknownst to you, somebody had photographed your original article back from 1983 and put it on the internet. I know. Can you believe? And she's so happy she did it. And now I'm kind of happy she did it too because if it led to this book, I'm glad. Sure. But at the time, you were confronted with something that you'd written 30 years prior that you hadn't necessarily wanted to be part of the public conversation again. And it put you very much in the public conversation. Yes, it was really, and on every level, it was disturbing to me. First of all, that seeing my photograph there was really disturbing. It's not that I'd forgotten, but it had been so long since I thought about it. And because I, I wasn't on social media at all, I really didn't understand the scope and magnitude of how something could go viral because I'd really never partaken of any of it. So it was just startling to me when the calls started coming in and the emails. So it was disturbing at every level. One, because I didn't ask for this. Two, because I hadn't prepared for it. Three, because on a personal level, I had all these friends. Many of them knew I'd been raped, but many didn't Mm. because it, it wasn't relevant. Suddenly, everybody knew and everybody was weighing in and very supportively, but still it's a lot. Then you have to comfort them. Then, you know, they comfort you, you comfort them. It's very boring. So, <laughs> But it also speaks to something that I think is an issue for rape survivors anyway, which is losing control and not having control over what... Who knows? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It was absolutely that. And also as a person and a writer... It bugged me because I knew exactly the minute I saw that photo, I mean, not the minute, but soon after that, again, I'd have to go back into that. Again, I'd have to sort of make sure that people knew that this wasn't all of who I am. You know, what about all those other books? What about a lifetime of work that has nothing to do with this issue? Also, as a writer, because I I read the Mahavishya thing (laughs) again, 
And, you know, it wasn't that good. <laughs> it was pretty good. It was okay for a 20-year-old, but I'm better now. And so that also kind of ate at me, you know. So you got asked to do an op-ed for the New York Times. Was that like a do-over in that case? You know, in a funny kind of way, it wasn't a do-over, but it was a stage two. And I didn't really, it, it happened interestingly because many people asked me to write and speak. And I just said, no, 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 no. But it kind of didn't stop. And then one of the things that happened is that the New York Times, this reporter wrote to me and said, do you, can we interview? And I said, no. I said, I'm not interested. And she said, well, can you do maybe a background? You know, it'd be nice to get some information from you for a story we are doing on this. So I said, that I can do. I mean, New York Times. So I talked to her on the phone and and she said, are you going to respond at all to this all this stuff about Manushi and everything? And I said, well, I was thinking, I was talking with my family. You know, we discussed my brother, my sister-in-law and my husband and me. We were discussing, should I do something or not? And he, Tom said, well, if you have something to say, say it. If you don't have anything to say, don't say it, which is very sensible. Mm. So then I thought I'd, I do have something to say. And um, and I wrote this piece, which took me 45 minutes to write. It came because it had been brewing for mm. 30 years. And so I told this woman about it. I said, I've written something. I'm not sure I want to give it to one place. She said, why don't you give it to us? Send it. And then the next day I sent it and immediately they said yes and it came. And at that point, then I told my daughter, my brother told his sons the day, older son, younger son was still too young, the day the Times piece came out because they were going to discuss the Times in school every day. Over the course of your life, you didn't take therapy um, for any of this, but you have survived remarkably well. What do you attribute that to? Well, there's therapy and there's therapy. Um, I don't know what makes people survive things. For one thing, I really, what happened to me was really bad. But honestly, in the grand scheme of things of people getting abused all their lives and becoming sex slaves as Yazidis, it's not, it, it's very bad, but it's, it's not the worst thing. But I, you know, I don't want to rank it, but I feel like there's two things that go on. One is that I think some people are just born slightly tougher and more resilient. And even though I was very shy and scared of things, I, there was a part of me like my dad who just didn't care or, or who hates being told what to do. And so those rapists really tried to tell me what to do in a way. And I don't like that. So that I didn't do it. I didn't do what they want. But also the other thing is that I... In all the women I interviewed, all over the world, really, the one thing I found in common besides this, you know, whether you have this resilience or not, because all of them aren't resilient, some are in terrible shape, is support. Mm. If you have people around you, I mean, really, I don't know what I would have done if I had gone home and my family had blamed me. I don't know how it would have been. I would have not been the same person. It's just that... It never even occurred to me that they would doubt me, not even for half a second. It never even occurred to them to doubt me. Mm -hmm. And then even, you know, all, all the other stories, everyone, when they talk about their rape, everyone I've talked to, part of the conversation will be the people who reacted badly and the people who reacted well. It's like, I don't know if you ever had a close person die, 
But when somebody close dies, you will remember for the rest of your life what people said. Yeah. And you will remember who showed up to the funeral and who didn't. And there's no undoing that. That's really true. It's like that. After the New York Times op-ed, you decided to write a book. Despite the fact that you quote in the book Vanessa uh, Gregoriadis, who wrote a book about campus rape, <laughs> who said, don't ever write a book about rape, that's my number one tip. Well, I just put that in for a joke and I called her up and asked if I could use it. Well, yeah, go ahead. So why did you write a book about what rape? Why did you ignore all of this good advice? Well, the thing is, that it's actually not true that after I wrote the op-ed, I decided to write a book about rape. The opposite is true. After I wrote the op-ed, I decided never to write a book about rape because I had agents calling me up and saying, we'll hire you. And it's like the writer's dream, right? All my life I've dreamed, this is my scenario, that an agent would call me up and say, can you do a book? And here I was saying no, because I just didn't want to, I didn't want to be defined by this. And the new, it was great. The response was great in the New York Times, but then I was done. So it was in fact the opposite. I didn't write about rape. I went and got the newspaper column For three years, I wrote about everything but rape. And I kind of dug myself back out of the hole of rape victim. So I didn't want to write it. And part of the reason I didn't want to write it because it never occurred to me to write this book. It it was always, the idea was always all the agents wanted a memoir, which would have been just a fake book. Mm -hmm. Because for all the fact that the rape and and the issue has been an important one all my life, I, I can't see hanging a memoir on it because it, it's not been, it, I don't think it's been that defining mm-hmm. of me, the act of what happened to me, more maybe what I did with it later or something. But, and I also thought, I mean, they're boring. What would I write? I think what you've written, though, is a really extraordinary and fantastic book. I really loved it. And I loved the fact that it doesn't adhere to any rules at all. Um, at all. You know, it doesn't adhere to structural rules about books. Um, you know, it's like you've thrown up a whole bunch of index cards and then assembled them where they landed. No, no, no. It's not quite I'm like sure that, that you put yeah. more work into it than that. But but it's it's it doesn't follow structural rules. It doesn't follow rules of memoir or research or analysis, but it follows all three. It's it's an extraordinary book. Um, Thank you. It follows my rules. I had very strict rules that it followed. I had to... I, I, I didn't want to write a memoir. And if you actually count words, I only talk about myself for maybe three or four pages in the whole lot. So you, nobody can say it's a memoir. But I surprised myself because it's really a book about me. Mm. Because I think if you write about a subject you feel strongly about reveals more of you than a memoir would because a memoir is stories but this is you know ideas and attitudes so it actually is kind of my book even though it's not a memoir so i you know the reason i finally gave in and wrote it is because this is not necessarily the book everybody wanted me to write it is it's not my it's everybody's book it's all these people who are in the book it's not just my story it's more like my lens mm. of looking at things. And it happened mostly because one person too many asked me to write a memoir, the Penguin India editor, and I was so irritated with her that that I I was like, why should I do this? And she said, she was the one who put the idea into my head that it doesn't have to be a memoir. It can be a book about rape. Mm. It doesn't have to be a book about you, the rape victim. But the way that you write this book about rape 
makes it possible for other people to talk about rape. You know, it 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 gives people who want to discuss this topic, which is so rarely discussed openly, mm-hmm. really, a way in that I think I think that's one of its great triumphs. Actually, that's what I wanted to do. Mm. So you have a seventeen-year-old daughter who's mm-hmm. the same age as you were when you were raped. What are your hopes for her? I think my hopes are how the same as any parent. I hope she's happy. I hope she's happy in her life. And if bad things happen to her, I hope she knows that she has many people to love her. And I I don't know if I actually have been asked this question. Not this. Your question is a very sensible one. But I've been asked by a few people. Now that your daughter is the same age as you, do you worry? And I'm like, are you human? Mm-hmm. You know, which parent doesn't worry about their kid? I have no way of knowing whether I worry more because of what happened to me. But I also know that I survived what happened to me, which is kind of nice. And she, unlike me, has someone to look at who has been through this and been okay. So I do, of course, I worry, but I, you know, I worry about her math grade or whatever. Mm. And you've risen and presumably you've raised a woman who can make decisions for herself as well. Oh, I hope so, since she's doing that right now while her parents are in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sahila Abdullali, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming into great. the Opera House. Thank you. You can watch the video of Sahela's event on the Sydney Opera House YouTube channel or find the link in our show notes. On the podcast next week is award-winning writer and activist Saraya Chamali. This podcast is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program and made by the It's a Long Story podcast team. Fleur Mitchell, Nerida Ross, Susie Anderson, Josh Milch, Joshua Craig, John Gardner, Riley Edwards, Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.